In the past 100 years, we have made some serious strides in our movie viewing. Excess is the name of the game. The bigger, the better. Have you been to Cinetopia? Cinetopia is, quote, an, a, a high-end amusement park for movie lovers. It's a building that contains 23 screens, and you can watch a movie in four different ways. You can see a movie in the movie parlor or a living room where they cater food and drinks. Or you can go to the Grand Auditorium or the GXL Theater, which is an extra large theater. We chose to see Star Trek Into Darkness in the GXL Theater, so Spock was displayed at 85 feet in HD. This, this theater is equipped with this new Dolby Atmos sound system, which has three times the norm in sound engineering. The seat had three inches more space in it. There was a, lay, a foot of legroom more than any other theater I've ever been in. Cinetopia has the biggest troughs of popcorn that I have ever seen. And they give you real butter. In fact, they have a butter bar where there are eight chef-inspired flavors of butter. If you leave the concessions off to the side, your ticket costs $13.50. Then you add $2.50 for the Atmos sound experience, and then, of course, another $1.50 for 3D. And your Cinetopia movie-going experience costs you $17.50 to see that movie. Excessive? A little perhaps, Right? Why do we press for bigger and better and more? Our appetites are all out of whack, craving more and more and more. This is the second week of our series, Seven Deadly Sins and Their Cure. Last week, Eric got us into the seven deadly sins in general, but also the sin of lust in particular. And this week's sin is gluttony. Proverbs. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, reference gluttony saying this, When you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. Now, we're enjoined in these verses to take this sin pretty seriously, but for most of us, this is the farthest thing from our minds and the farthest thing from our interests. You know, we normally gather around mealtime when we gather for church, so moment of truth. How many of you, upon seeing the topic for today, would just rather go eat something than think about eating something? <laughs> me too. You know, honestly, when I got this topic assigned to me, which is interesting in and of itself because I designed the series and assigned it to myself, I reacted the same way. I didn't want to deal with the sin of gluttony. But for the past couple of weeks, I've been thinking about food, and I've been reading about food, and I've been studying all sorts of things related to food. You know, in order to really understand food and to be honest and non-hypocritical in my preaching, I've taken one for the team on a couple of occasions and eaten myself silly. <laughs> and here's what I've discovered. We need food. We, we have to have it to live. And we also have food as a major part of our lives. It's in our mouths multiple times a day. And so as a result, gluttony is an easy sin to commit. And it's also terribly misunderstood. You know, every apple that I eat presents an opportunity to sin. 
Now, most of us think that we know something about gluttony, but if there's one thing that my research into the seven deadly sins has proven to me, it's that I'm often pretty ignorant. Now, my initial stereotypes of these sins often prove to be very superficial. You know, the typical caricature of this sin of gluttony in particular is this. Gluttony equals overweight. It's that simple. So everyone who is overweight in church cringes when food is mentioned, and then all of the at-weight or underweight people think that they're off the hook. They're the thin or the skinny ones, and so they don't have to listen to anything. But who is more gluttonous? Is it the fat person or is it the skinny person? If you answered that question quickly in your mind, then you probably subscribe to the stereotype that I just mentioned. The reality is we don't have enough info to make the call. Because if a vice, in this case gluttony, is a habitual pattern of sin choices that eventually cuts a groove into our character, that's what we learned last week, then can we really connect an external symptom, heaviness, to an internal motivation, sinful gluttony? Well, Maybe we can. But if that's the case, then can't we also connect the external symptom, skinniness, to the internal sinful motivation, gluttony? And you respond, well, I guess it depends on how you define gluttony. And I would say, exactly. If we get rid of the simple equation that gluttony equals being overweight, then we can see gluttony for what it really is. Gluttony is all about pleasure. My own pleasure. My own excessive, immediate, greedy, tangible, rich pleasure. So can a so-called skinny person be gluttonous? Of course. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters in which an older, more experienced demon coaches a younger demon in the art of temptation. And in one letter, this elder demon, Screwtape, encourages his pupil, Wormwood, to subtly shift from thinking about gluttony in terms of excess only. He encourages him to think about gluttony also in terms of delicacy. And to help explain this, he draws attention to a woman who's caught up in this sin. Now, she doesn't realize that her whole life is enslaved to gluttony because the quantities of her food are small. But he asks this question. But what do quantities matter, provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern? You know, when this lady goes to a restaurant, she drives everybody crazy because of her specific, insatiable demands for her exact but nearly impossible to produce pleasures. All she wants is a cup of tea or an egg or a piece of toast properly prepared. This lady is in an all-I-want state of mind. When the food arrives, she turns away and she says, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too, too weak, and the tedious weeniness piece of really crisp little toast. Gluttony is commanding. Gluttony is demanding. Gluttony is controlling. It is excessive pleasure-seeking. That's why it's a sin for this woman. It's, it's all I want. It's all about me, and it can come in the form of too much or too little. Now, gluttony is Burger King's tagline, have it your way. Now, if gluttony... It's all about pleasure. If the goal is pleasure, then why do most often when we talk about gluttony, does it revolve around food rather than other stuff? You know, the truth is that gluttony does apply to cars and hobbies and movie going and internet use and alcohol. 
It applies to work and various experiences, Blu-rays, vacations, clothes, collectibles, closets, drugs, eating out, and a whole number of things in our lives. But the reason that we focus on food most often in terms of gluttony is because the tradition of the deadly seven focuses on food. And since food is such a regular part of all of our lives that doesn't get a lot of reflection, it's worth giving it some of our attention today. You know, what we need to to do is to understand what food is and why we need it and how to use it properly. What is this thing for? When we grasp all of that, then we'll be able to actually pray the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us today our daily bread. I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 6. It's the Gospel of John in the New Testament. You can follow along on the screen. If you haven't done so already, take your outline out so you can take some notes. The first two points of my outline describe our metaphorical menu for today. And then in the final point, I'm I'm going to extend an invitation to dine. All right, so we're going to start with the first item on the menu. It's appropriately an appetizer, finger food. An appetizer of finger food. Follow along as I read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. John writes, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Every wedding that I attend reminds me of the fact that I have no class. (laughs) By the time that the dinner reception rolls around, the people with class are very quickly separated from the people without class. And the appetizer is probably the place where this is most clear. The people who have class understand the appetizer. You know, they're not enamored or obsessed with the appetizer because they've seen this kind of thing before. They understand what this is supposed to do, so they kind of meander their way slowly over to the table or go find the person with the tray, and they just take one or two, and they eat quietly, and they eat politely, just preparing their palate for the meal. Then there are those of us, me, without class. The minute that I see the appetizers come out, I think that the meal has been cut up into small pieces... And so it is incumbent upon me to get as many of these as possible into my mouth. No classers like me think to themselves when they see the appetizers, this must be all there is. 
People without class are able to conceal how many times they've been to the table or been to the people walking around with the trays. They blame it on that social guy over there or an enormous number of bathroom breaks. People without class are able to eat tons and tons of this kind of thing because they're not preparing themselves really for the meal. They think this is the meal. I am without class at a wedding reception because I just do not understand the purpose of the appetizer. I forget the purpose of this thing. But the appetizer is meant to prepare the palate for the meal. You know, it's designed to increase your appetite, to stimulate your hunger, to unleash your cravings, all in order to point to what's to come. In John 6, Jesus provides an appetizer in the wilderness. Now, a little over a year ago, I was in Israel, and we visited the location where scholars think Jesus performed this miracle. And it was really fun to stand there and to see this huge section of hillsides spread out. You could picture thousands of people gathered as they were fed by Jesus' hand. It's absolutely incredible. There's this mosaic that marks the spot. It's this image of two fish and the loaves. I got a mug that has that on it from Israel. It was an incredible miracle, and I remember standing there thinking, this is incredible. And what struck me as incredible then and what strikes me as incredible now as I read this story is that Jesus was and is interested in more than our hearts and our spirits and our minds. You could sum all of those up by saying our spiritual lives. Now Jesus is very interested in our spiritual lives and we'll see that as we proceed through this chapter. But that shouldn't stop us from realizing that Jesus recognizes that humans, himself included, need to eat. We have bodies. Our bodies need sustenance. And so hunger is the problem that launches this miracle. You know, after setting the stage in verses 1 through 4, John presents a problem to be solved in verses 5 through 9. There is a massive group of people following Jesus, 5,000 plus people, and they're starting to get hungry. So Jesus recognizes that they need to eat. He affirms their need to eat, and he quizzes his disciples to see what plan they can devise. So Philip does some quick math, some quick calculations, and realizes that they're out of luck. But thankfully, Andrew has been scouting his resources, and a little boy volunteers this meager meal, which in Jesus' hands becomes a feast. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. You know, this has all of the ingredients of a feast, thanksgiving and celebration and abundance and God's provision of food. Take a look again carefully this time at verse 11. Jesus, as God's agent and representative, miraculously multiplies and distributed or gave the food out to the people. This is God's provision through Jesus, his agent, his representative on earth. And this is good food. You know, loaves and fish, these are important and available foods in the region. Jesus doesn't give them some bland gruel. He doesn't give them some heavenly special food. Jesus gives them something right off their normal menu. Notice also that Jesus gave thanks. He verbally recognized God's good gift, this provision. He blessed God for this food. The phrase, those who were seated, is a reference to this crowd, a group of Jewish people who are accustomed to feasting well. So there's no question that this is an event that's filled with excitement and celebration. Jesus is throwing a huge party for these people, and he's giving them a feast. And then finally, notice the emphasis on abundance. 
Here in verse 11, it shows up in the fact that the crowd has received as much as they wanted. In verse 12, we're told they had enough to eat. In verse 13, we're told that they had 12 baskets left over. That's a lot of multiplied food. It seems a bit excessive. Feast-like. Now, if you put all of those observations together, here's what you get. God created human beings with bodies that experience hunger... And God provides food, good food, in abundance that we receive in celebration and with thanksgiving. Now, does that surprise you at all? Is this what you thought that you'd hear on a message about gluttony? I think this is exactly what we need to hear to understand gluttony properly. Food is a good gift from God to be enjoyed. Jesus affirms this in no uncertain terms, not only here by lavishly feasting with this multitude of people, but throughout his entire ministry. Jesus is accused of being a glutton himself in Luke chapter 7 because Jesus recognized and appreciated the gift of food. He ate it joyfully and with thanksgiving to God. Both because he had to sustain his body, but also because he was going to share it and celebrate with other people. But Jesus is not in the no-class class like I am at a wedding because Jesus had a proper perspective on food. For Jesus and for the Bible as a whole, food is not the end-all, be-all. Food is not to be obsessed over. Food isn't to be abused, but it's rather to be used to fill our bellies and to draw our attention to God. Jesus ate recognizing that food is an appetizer. He, he knew that the appetizer is simply finger food pointing to the real meal yet to come. So as glorious and as wonderful as food is, and there are lots of really good foods, it's not sufficient in and of itself. We'll be hungry again in a few hours. Food, and all of it is this finger food, is a means to point. John calls this a sign. Look at verse 14 again. John writes, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into this world. When Jesus fed the people, when he did this feeding miracle, that's the sign. He was affirming the goodness of food and our need for food, but he didn't leave it there. He gave them bread to eat so that they would be ready for the real meal. Which takes us to the second course. The second item on our menu is an entree of true bread. An entree of true bread. So in verse 15, we leave Jesus. He goes by himself off to a mountain. In the middle of the night, he crosses over the water, walks on the water to the boat where his disciples are, and their boat continues moving. While this is happening, the crowd is going the opposite side of the lake to get around to where Jesus is. Pick up the story in verse 25 of John chapter 6. He writes, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? 
Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Skip down to verse 48. Jesus repeats himself and continues, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Quick quiz. Do you remember what Old Testament story stands at the center of this discussion that Jesus is having with these people? You know, we get hints with this reference to Moses and this reference to manna. You know, in the books of Exodus and Numbers and the Psalms, we read that God delivered the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, and he did this through the leadership of Moses. And shortly after this exodus from Egypt, the people cry out for God to give them food to sustain their trek through the wilderness. Now, this very normal need to eat food becomes a twisted complaint before God. They believed that God could deliver them from bondage in Egypt, but they didn't believe that God could sustain them in the wilderness. And so very shortly after their normal need becomes a complaint, they begin to accuse God of actually leading them out into the desert so that he could starve them to death there. God hears their cries, and in great grace, he provides them manna, a type of food, a food for them to eat in the wilderness. Now, God administered this manna through Moses. Moses stood before God, asking him for provisions, and then Moses stood before the people on behalf of God, administering this manna to them. Now, that's the background. Here are the two important things that we need to note about this story to understand the episode in John 6. You know, first, as we just read a moment ago, there is some confusion in this discussion between Jesus and this group of people that he's just fed as to who provided the manna in the wilderness. Was it Moses or was it God? Now, the people say it was Moses, but Jesus insists that it was God who did the providing. By their bad Bible reading, they have confused gift and giver. Second, There was this expectation that another leader like Moses was going to arrive and that he would, like Moses did, both liberate his people from bondage and also sustain them to provide for their needs. So they reasoned like this. If Moses provided a bunch of food in the wilderness, then imagine what this new liberator is going to provide for us. Feasts. So you remember at the end of the last episode that we just read, at the end of this feeding miracle, the people claim that Jesus is this unique prophet. They're thinking that Jesus is going to be like a guy like Moses. He had just fed them in a bountiful way, so he's got to be the guy. In fact, if he is the guy, then there are going to be lots of feasts going down. That's the context that sets up this this episode in John 6. You know, the crowd's expectation is at fever pitch. So when they find Jesus, they're fixated on the next meal that he's going to provide. This is really fun. Man, the party is just getting started. Now, that explains Jesus' abrupt and seemingly rude response to their question in verse 26. Look what Jesus said. They ask him, when did he get here? And he says, very truly, I tell you, 
You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Jesus understands what they're coming after. They're there to fill up their bellies. This is confirmed in verse 30 and again in verse 34. In verse 34, the people say, Sir, always give us this bread. Man, feed us. They're there for the ride, for the enjoyment of it, for the feast, for the endless meals. Simply put, they're fixated on the food. They're going after pleasure. They're following the food. They're not following Jesus. They're pursuing the gift rather than the giver. For them and for many of us, food signals stability and comfort and satisfaction and enjoyment. They're self-interested. They want their bread and they want to eat it too. When appetites rule the day, when food dominates, when the stomach becomes God, when we're mastered by our hunger, when we're deaf to our deepest needs and the needs of other people because of our growling tummies, gluttony reigns. There's a story told of a 14th century feud between two brothers. Guys named Reynold and Edward. After many bitter battles, Edward captured and imprisoned and tortured his brother. Now, before you think that this is too bad of a deal for Reynold, you need to know that the cell was actually quite comfortable and it didn't even have a lock on the door. Reynold could come and go as he pleased, but the one problem was the doorway was narrow and Reynold was not. And so he sat inside this cell, only having to lose weight to be able to get out. But this is where the torture comes in. His brother, knowing his other brother, Reynold's love for food, stocked the cell with lots of food and drinks. And so he put a choice before his brother. You can have freedom or pleasure, self-control, or you can have food. All Reynold had to do to get freedom was to stay hungry But instead, he chose his food, listening to his appetite, and in the end, it led to his death. Your food and the appetites that crave it are powerful things. Some of us have probably even cried out at certain points in great frustration at time, wondering why God made such strong appetites and desires inside human beings. Why did God make us? So that we have to eat. Why did God make us with these strong cravings and desires? According to Jesus, God made us to experience hunger and to eat food so that we'd understand what he means when he calls himself true bread, the bread of life. Did you catch that? God gives us bread, made us to eat so that we could understand that Jesus is the true bread, the bread of life. Now, Jesus makes this point by drawing attention to a similarity and several contrasts. Here's the point of similarity as Jesus draws it out. As bread sustains life, so Jesus sustains life. As bread sustains life, so Jesus sustains life. The bread that we eat and the bread that is Jesus are life sustainers. That's the similarity. Here are the contrasts. In verse 27, he contrasts the bread that we eat from the bread that is Jesus by saying that the first kind spoils, but the second kind endures. 
In verse 35, we learn the first kind is needed again and again. We keep eating, but the second kind truly satisfies. In verses 49 and 50, we learn that the first kind can't keep us from dying, but that the second kind gives us life. So the bread that we eat spoils, doesn't satisfy in a lasting way, and leads to death. But by contrast, the bread that is Jesus endures and satisfies and gives life. Are you following this? Jesus begins with the place where they are, their need for food, their want for food, but then he ultimately tells them that it's inadequate. And then in one swift move, he elevates himself to the point of adequacy, saying, I am the bread of life. Jesus, not bread, sustains our lives. So just like their ancestors in the desert who misread their Bibles... These people have misread the sign, the feeding miracle, and by doing so they have mistaken the gift for the giver, thinking that food is all there is, thinking that food gives them life. And with them, many of us are following food rather than following Jesus. And it results in getting what we want, but it doesn't result in getting what we ultimately need. Jesus, not bread, sustains life. He is the one that the appetizer was pointing to. He is the meal to which the appetizer was pointing. He is the true bread. So, so far our menu has displayed an appetizer of finger food and an entree of true bread. The only thing left is to extend an invitation. Eat up. An invitation to eat up. I really enjoy Coke. The beverage, Coca-Cola, that is. I really, really like drinking that beverage. Some people really don't like, you know, the way that carbonation feels inside of their bellies as it kind of bubble up. I love that feeling. I love the taste of Coke. I've argued for years that God gave us the ability to make good food and drinks, and we should enjoy them to the hilt. And Coke is my thing. I love to drink it. So question, is it a problem to drink Coke? That question causes marriage tension. My wife, Rachel, will bring up the health concern of my Coke drinking, but I retort that it's not going to affect me. She'll bring up the financial toll, but I'll respond that it's not nearly as expensive as having other kinds of beverages in our home. She questions whether it's good to be controlled by something, but I insist, obviously, that I'm not controlled by it and that I can stop drinking it any time, even though I don't. She contends that I enjoy it too much and that I'm motivated by selfishness when I drink it. And I respond that I do enjoy it, thank you very much, and I have a right to eat and drink whatever I feel like. Now, someplace in the course of this conversation, which has been multiplied something like a million times in the course of our marriage, I realize that I prize Coke, or to be more specific, the pleasure of drinking Coke, more than I do my wife in this moment, who has sound arguments and is correct. I am, at times, dominated by my desire for Coke. Now, I don't tell you that because I think that you're interested in the small and and ridiculous nature of my life. But I tell you that because we have to, at some point, bring this from this abstract point, true bread, Jesus is bread, to our dinner tables, to our actual eating and drinking habits. 
We'd really like to eat this true bread that Jesus offers to us as long as I can drink my Coke too or have my favorite foods or drink my coffee, which I won't even bring up or mention again. (laughs) This is really hard in real life because we have a hard time holding the fact that food is a good thing together with the fact that food is an inadequate thing. You know, how can I eat without distorting food and beginning to make it ultimate? How can I eat in such a way that I have enough food, but I haven't dulled my hunger for God? And interestingly, the answer is to eat more. The problem isn't that we dabble with gluttony. Our sin is that we're not gluttonous enough for God in terms of excess. We don't go after him as much as we should be to have our needs met. After Jesus talks about this true bread that he offers to these people, the crowd begins to argue over how they can eat this bread, this Jesus. How can we eat you? Look at verses 52 through 58. The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. There are more than ten references in these verses to eating and drinking and feeding. Jesus is envisioning a major feast of true bread, that is, himself. Now before you get all cannibalistic on me, You need to recognize that eating and drinking have already been defined in this passage as believing in Jesus. So he's inviting people to come to him and to believe in him, to metaphorically eat up. And the result of that is found in verse 56. Jesus says very clearly, whoever does this, whoever eats my flesh, whoever drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Jesus is offering eternal life in the presence. It's a quality of life that can be lived now and it comes as we believe and remain in him. Jesus offers us himself while we settle for the little that food promises us. When we drop our agenda for pleasure through food or through whatever we're going after and we take Jesus at his word, believing, believing that we truly gain life when we ignore our sinful, gluttonous demands, then we really experience satisfying fullness in him. The antidote to gluttony, whether excess or delicacy, is to become gluttonous for God. And not in some trite, spiritualized diet program kind of way, but in a day-in, day-out, real, daily dependence upon God. This is exactly how Jesus lived. As Jesus was in the desert, he was tempted to turn stones into bread, but he replied that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is amazing. As Jesus was fasting for 40 days, he was feasting on God, depending on him, believing in him, remaining in him. 
In John chapter 4, Jesus is at the well with this woman. The disciples have gone to get food for them because there was no food available in this wilderness spot. The disciples come back with food for themselves and for Jesus. They're going to share a meal together and they find out somehow that Jesus has already eaten and they're super puzzled. How is it possible that he found food in the midst of this wilderness? And Jesus responds to them that his food is to do the will of God. What we know as readers, but what the disciples don't know, is that Jesus had this amazing conversation with this woman about truly thirsting and hungering for God and being satisfied in Jesus. So Jesus says, my food is to do the will of God. I am feasting on God by depending on him, by believing him, by remaining in him. In John 6, in John 4, in Matthew 4, Jesus connected in a super vivid but simple way, eating with obedience and worship and true life. He joined heaven with earth, manna with bread, flesh with spirit. He linked physical hunger with spiritual hunger. He taught us that every bite and every sip is an opportunity to find satisfaction, not in the gift, the food, or the drink, but in God, the giver. So do you eat this way? Are you able to keep your appetites in check because you're cultivating a hunger for God? Some of us, myself included, need to practice frugality. At your next meal, receive your food as a good gift to be enjoyed and eat it with gratitude. Eat just enough so that you're full And then stop eating. Take a moment right then to realize that Jesus nourishes our body providing food, but he nourishes our spirits as we feast on him. Be frugal in your eating. Whenever you eat and drink, every single meal, frugality. And some of us, myself included, need to practice fasting. Fasting is simply a way of foregoing a meal to respond to some work that God's doing in your life. So maybe you've been convicted today that you struggle with the sin of gluttony and that you have been giving in and you determine that it would be wise to fast for a meal, to intentionally stay hungry so that you can break the grip, the power, the control of food in your life and reacquaint yourself with a hunger for God to allow staying hungry to make me realize my dependence upon him. Fasting quickly and tangibly underscores our dependence on God. And some of us, myself included, need to practice feasting. Now, feasting is only a feast if all of the other meals you have aren't feasts, right? So we practice frugality and fasting to prepare us for a feast. But I would encourage you to pick one meal in the near future to enjoy the bounty of God and his creation in food. Invite some people over to share a meal with you and to celebrate and share food together. Enjoy what God has given with thanksgiving as you anticipate the future feast of heaven. Because when you anticipate this future feast that's coming, where we will be fully satisfied in him, you're not nearly as anxious or as greedy to get your fill right now. As we draw things to a close, I want to invite our worship band as well as the bands at the campus to come and prepare us to worship together. And as they do, let me wrap this up by saying this by way of summary. Food is an appetizer. 
Food is an appetizer. It's a finger food. It points to Jesus, our true bread and our life sustainer. So dig in and eat up. 